Welcome to Inspiring People and Places, where we interview national leaders in the architectural, engineering, construction, and development industry in an effort to educate, innovate, and inspire industry professionals to disrupt the status quo, improve their project teams, and steward public and private investments more effectively. I'm your host, BJ Kramer, President and CEO of MCFA. Allow me to introduce today's guest. All right, Inspiring People and Places, our next guest. I'm, I'm so excited for the conversation. I'm going to timestamp us here. We have the Super Bowl coming up this weekend. So by the time this airs, the Eagles will have won the Super Bowl, Uh-oh. beat the Kansas City Chiefs. But today's guest has a specialty in the stadium business. So David Murphy is Crawford's senior principal and co-owner, has extensive experience in design, build, and integrated delivery. Uh, to include P3, which we talk uh, a decent amount about here on the Inspiring People and Places podcast. He's worked with many nationally and internationally significant intercollegiate athletics and professional sports, to include Lambeau Field, and uh, which is the Green Bay Packers, and Lumen Field, Seattle Seahawks. He continuously works to drive his firm to be innovative. One of our missions here at the Inspiring People Places podcast is pushing innovation, and he does that by focusing on resiliency, biophilic, which I think I had to look up before we jumped on the podcast, so we'll talk about that, and sustainable designs. Please join me in welcoming David Murphy to the show. David, how are you, sir? I'm doing great. Thank you for inviting me to, to, to be on this uh, today. Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited. I think you're my first guest that specializes in sports and entertainment venues, uh, which is from the outside looking in, one of the sexiest facility types that, that you can be involved in. So I'm really excited to, uh, my team keeps pushing me to say, how do we get involved in, in, in those types of facilities? So I'm excited to, to hear about your career path. I, I will announce to you and, and to the, to the uh, listeners, I'm headed out to Phoenix uh, for the Super Bowl, uh, flying out tomorrow morning. Huge Eagles fan. That's, that, that was the, the reason for the intro there. Uh, come on, um, it's going to be a great game. So. It, it, it will be. I'm pumped. We start every show, instead of me reading a long bio about all of the different projects you've been involved in, is really uh, hearing about your career path and, and what led you to, to Crawford and, and into the, the sports and entertainment industry. I know your education. Talk to us about either pre-education or post-education, how you, how you got involved in, in the architecture industry and, and then uh, where your career path has taken you. Well, I, I developed an interest in architecture early as a young man. Uh, my I, my father was a farmer, but he okay. also was a master carpenter. And after every year, after each harvest, he'd take on a project, build a house, renovate a house. So I always saw that the craft of building, and I was uh, I enjoyed that. It was interesting to me. I also liked to draw. So uh, I think I was fourteen, and you know the Brady Bunch and Michael, you know Mr. Brady helped me along. Yeah. that's not a bad career. So I think at 13 or 14, I knew I wanted to be an architect. I'm a cyclone. I went to Iowa State. Uh, my first job was in Kansas City. And as I, you know, as a young architect, I learned uh, very quickly that I wanted to, I had an interest in urban design, not just designing one building, but designing multiple buildings at once to create uh, environments, entertainment, mixed use, um, office complexes. So I went back to grad school. I went to University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. So I, I know the Eagles pretty well from uh, my day street, Center City. And then there I met my current business partner, Stacy Jones. He and I became just good friends. He's an Australian. He went back to Sydney. I went to Baltimore. 
my first job uh, in the sports was the Camden Yards. And having this interest in urban design, uh, I was fortunate enough to work on the Camden Yards, uh, Oriole Park, M&T Bank Stadium, and then launched into a career in sports architecture on the back of that project. I always wanted a free trip to meet my buddy in Australia, so I started working on the Sydney Olympics, and then that led me into Lumen Field, Lambeau Field, facilities for the Cincinnati Bengals. So I quickly got into stadiums, did a lot of arenas, NBA, NHL arenas too. I used to work for a firm called LRB Beckett. Uh, left them in uh, 2001 and, and opened the office for Crawford Architects along with my good friend, uh, Stacy Jones. Headquarters initially was in Sydney, Australia, and then Kansas City. Stacy moved here in 2002, and now the world headquarters of Crawford is here in Kansas City. That's awesome. Camden Yards, you were working for what firm at the time? I was with RTKL. We were a consultant to uh, HOK Sport at the time. So we were we did the urban design, the planning. Along the way, that's where I met Janet Marie Smith, who joined the Orioles. And so that was that was just a landmark project. To this day, it, it impacts all professional sports, but in particular, Major League Baseball. Yeah. And then I, I'm really curious, Sydney Olympics, you know, you have this huge temporary event that happens. Are you involved in the master planning? At what point were you involved in the in that that program? And and talk to us a little bit about that experience as an architect. So when I joined Ellery back in 1992, my first assignment was the Olympic Stadium in Atlanta. So I, I designed the Olympic Stadium for the Atlanta Olympic Games. Knew that Sydney or Beijing was going to be the front runners, and so here was my opportunity to get a free trip down to Sydney to see my friend. And so we started working with Stacy to pursue the project. And Australia uses, you introduced at the beginning, a process called public-private partnerships or P3. Mm -hmm. Back in those days, it was called BOOT, Build, Own, Operate, Transfer. And that's the way they were going to deliver the Olympic Stadium in Sydney. So we joined a team, quite an ordeal to get on a team, a team that was going to win. And so that's how we, I first got introduced to uh, P3 development. We did not win the project. We came in second, unfortunately. But along the way, we met a lot of clients who then ultimately came to Branson, Missouri. And when I opened the office in 2001 here, those clients that we met at the Sydney Olympics was the developers for Branson Landing. And that's how we opened Crawford Architects in the United States. And that was an urban mixed-use development that had a convention center. So again, that's just kind of the, the profile of our work, um, mixed-use development anchored by a stadium, arena, or a convention center, public assembly. A couple of interesting ties, the whole build, own, operate, transfer. I, I went to grad school at University of Missouri, Rolla, or oh, sure, Missouri you bet, University you of bet, Science yeah. Technology now. The degree was in engineering management, master's degree, and one of the projects that we talked about was project alliancing which was also formed in Australia, which was essentially cost share, risk share around the entire integrated project team. And so it seems like Australia was, was kind of the bleeding edge of, of methodo uh, delivery methodologies. And, and, and we call that integrated delivery. And that is the same. That's how the project alliancing evolves into the integrated delivery. And Australia is a leader in that. I look at it as why they do that is because it's a big country. Maybe there's 20 million people in the entire country. They have limited, they have a lot of resources, but as far as when it comes to construction, they have to get really creative because they don't have a huge population to fund these jobs. And so that's, I think that's, they've always been innovators and that's, that's 
one of the reasons why always leading the pack in that type of delivery. I, I think it's something we need to learn a lot from, you know, built environment is is as challenging as it's ever been right now between inflation and supply chains. And there's a ton of discussion around risk sharing, risk shifting, and the contractors seem to to eventually own the bag because they're the last one to touch the project. Right. But that's right. That's true. That's true. And I think that's one of the things that's always a challenge for an architect is to design the building. You want to be there at the day the ribbon the ribbon is cut, you know, and you want to be able to see through to make sure that your design is executed and, and the client gets good value and gets the product that they bought essentially yeah. in the design and the buyout of construction. So those are all things I think that the integrated delivery processes, the owner, uh, the architect and the builder are all in partnership to share that risk and share the rewards. It's a very effective method of delivery that we always yeah. promote. Is that how Lumen Field and Lambo were done? So uh, Lambo was a construction manager at risk and technically Lumen Field was also a construction manager at risk, both built by Turner, an excellent construction company that I've done a lot of work with over the years. The thing that was unique about Lumen Field is the project manager that ultimately um, managed the project was an Aussie from Melbourne. And so he, even though it wasn't by contract, a integrated delivery, he treated it that way. And mm. Turner being a really good collaborator and the firm I was with, and I was the project director for the project. There was a high level of collaboration that even though it wasn't integrated delivery, it essentially was integrated delivery, but it was Ray Colliver ultimately became the guy that with his background from Melbourne, Australia, you know, it's another example. Uh, I would always refer to the work that we've done with Human Field as a very highly collaborative, integrated process. Which, I, I mean, you've you've been around a while. The most successful projects I've seen or I've touched they they have that philosophical agreement between all team members that you know contracts are contracts but the team itself has to has to come together collaborate and figure out how to design it solve problems navigate the budget issues navigate the schedule issues and deliver the project for for the end user and and yes there's an owner or a project sponsor but when you have a highly collaborative team everybody feels like they own the project that's right and and my, my philosophy is whatever's right for the project you do. And, and, and yeah. if you have that team of, uh, from the ownership down to the builders, even the subcontractors, everyone buys into that, the project will be successful. Yeah. Uh, could you talk to us a little bit about innovation from your perspective and dig in a little bit on resiliency, biophilic and sustainable design? Yeah. My first trip to Australia, you know, they had sustainability initiatives that was not really being practiced in the United States. And at that time, they had the, an ozone issue. They had you know, resources that they, uh, water and other things that they were looking to, to conserve and uh, leverage to the fullest extent possible. So even in the early 90s, I started to learn about sustainability. And as LEED and other different sustainability initiatives caught traction in the United States and, and, and Europe, I think that's, that's something that the design profession has embraced and has to embrace, given just what we're, what we're facing with our, our resources and climate change and everything. So I think that's a very important part. And the biophilic design, just uh, connecting with nature, I think uh, is part of that sustainability, but at the same time also improves environments for buildings users. Uh, that's something that I think is very important, just daylighting connections, whether it's uh, views to nature or actual bringing living 
walls and other things inside of the building that I think is, is very important. And that also creates a degree of resiliency in the sense of people are healthier in, in those buildings. Uh, when we uh, were working on the Minnesota Vikings headquarters, the Twin City Orthopedics Performance Center in Minnesota, uh, we took a lot of effort during the design pre-COVID to create flexibility and to be able to adapt their environment as required. And when COVID did hit, you know, they had that, that, that flexibility, the biophilic design features that we had in that uh, building. At the end of the day, they never had to shut down. They were able to move things around and get the, the, you know, the social distancing that was needed to keep the team together. And so that was a project where I learned just the proofs in the pudding there were some of the things that we were always practicing. And sometimes it was always a challenge with the project budget because you always want to try to value engineer and doing other things. The decisions that we made paid dividends during that. And you never know that that, that level of resiliency is um, something that we should always be forward looking, forward thinking, because we never know what's going to happen. Uh, whether it's a, we do a lot of work in Louisiana, whether it's a hurricane that hits you or uh, uh, other natural disasters or just a pandemic, you know, that's something that's all designers and builders need to be conscientious of and working to uh, achieve that that level, high level of resiliency in a project. I, I want to ask you if there's any current projects that you're you're working on or getting ready to work on or propose on. But before I go there, Lumen Field, Seattle Seahawks, supposedly the noisiest and loudest yeah. stadium. How much of that was intentional and, and wanted by the owner during the design phase? How did you work through that? My One of our first meetings, my first meetings with Paul Allen, I was coming back from Sydney. And we were working on our proposal for the Olympic Stadium. It had a, a major roof covering over 60% of the fans. The Australian sun can be intense. And so as we got there, uh, one of the first things that he challenged the design team and, and me in particular, he wanted to re he wanted a building that was like Husky Stadium. He loved Husky Stadium. He loved the roof. He liked the grass. He wanted to protect the fans from the rain. Uh, and this was in keeping with what we were already doing and perfecting in Sydney. So one of my first trips to Husky Stadium, you know, you, you see that roof proximity, the, the location on the on the water, that sense of place, you know, that uniqueness of the iconic uh, were all things that he said, OK, when we do this, the new Lumen Field downtown, we have the skyline. We don't have water. We do have water, but not, you know, in the end zone. We have the skyline. And then the roof, again, trying to cover as many fans as we could. Along the way, just inherently, just the acoustics, that roof makes the building loud. And also, it was a very small site. If you've ever been there, it's got a lot of cantilevers, some innovative structural engineering and architectural design to make it fit on the site. So the fans, they're on top of the field. It's one of the most efficient buildings in the NFL. And I think that intimacy and that roof creates the acoustical effect that translates to home field advantage. And uh, I, I still to this day think that uh, Lambeau and uh, Lumen Field, two of my buildings are the most uh, intimate, best home field advantage, I think, in the NFL. Yeah. It's stuff that I, I'm really proud of even to this day. And there's some fantastic new buildings coming online, but these, none of them have, to my opinion, surpassed Lumen Field. Yeah, there I from my perspective, I, I wasn't involved in them, and they're both iconic. I haven't been to Lambeau. I have been to, uh, to the Seahawks Stadium. Back to the Chiefs, uh, we're always in a competition with the Seahawks about which stadium's louder. 
And, uh, <laughs> you know, I think Arrowhead might have it slightly, but there's more fans in Arrowhead, too. Than, than right. So I, I know that the Tennessee Titans are supposed to be building a new stadium in Nashville. I think the Buffalo Bills are, are supposed to be building a new stadium up Buffalo. What is kind of trendsetting and innovative and what's the need and how is the NFL or sports in general changing from an architectural perspective? Uh, you talk about sense of place. It feels like the stadium's no longer a destination, but a, a final destination of kind of a community that you, you slowly work your way into. Are you seeing that across the board? I think that the trend, you know, starting with Lumen Field and the Lumen Field Advanced Center, that facility is used 365 days a year. And I think that trend in the NFL is to increase the event days to the fullest extent possible. So SoFi is based on that. Uh, U.S. Bank Stadium uh, seeks to achieve that. Uh, and then as you start to look at things that the Cowboys did and the Vikings have done with their headquarters, you know, creating that destination that was supported by other uses, retail, convention, conference, hotels, uh, food and beverage. Um, that is something that I think in particular Tennessee is trying to achieve. Buffalo, of course, as well. So they are entertainment destinations. They, you know, they're trying to uh, accommodate as many event days as they can. I'm always going back to my work at Camden Yards. These are urban buildings. Yeah, they need to be good pieces of architecture themselves. They have to be attractive buildings, fit into their context, um, stand out, be iconic. Uh, and I think when you start to see some of the work, like at U.S. Bank, uh, SoFi in now Tennessee, and even what the Chicago Bears are starting to look at, those are some of the trends that just again making them destinations that contribute to their sites, their urban environments, their context. Awesome. Inspiring People in Places is brought to you by MCFA. MCFA is a CVE-verified, service-disabled, veteran-owned small business. At MCFA, our why is to inspire people in places through project leadership. We provide planning, strategy, program management, and construction management support services to a wide variety of public and private sector clients. Uh, moving into some leadership lessons you've had throughout your career you're sitting at the table with, you know, big financial sponsors, probably some egos around the table. What have you learned about building and leading project teams over your career? Uh, we started talking a little bit about what's ever in the best interest of the project, but any other leadership lessons you can uh, you can share with us? So always be collaborative, uh, be transparent, be a team player build friendships, build relationships. And that, that starts with that uh, collaboration. And back to that whole discussion of integrated delivery, do what's right for the project. I think as you start to then uh, look at being in that collaborative spirit, you know, you're, you're always uh, looking to make sure everyone succeeds on a project. With that kind of as the foundation for a team, the power of a big idea is something that has always served me well. And, and that could uh, happen, or it always has to happen early in the project, but it's something that can be on the back of a napkin. It could be a, a series of words, photo or whatever, but that big idea that everyone rallies around is important to not only design, but then construction and then operations. Uh, so, the, you know, creating a team and then creating that big idea, that's, I think those are uh, major keys to success for any project. Make no small plans, that's right. Daniel Burnham, Dream right? Dream big. Moving into some rapid fire questions uh, outside of 
the architecture industry? What is it that you like to do outside of the office? Well, I like to hang with my family. None of my kids are architects, but they're both creative. One's a filmmaker, one's a, a writer. And my wife is very creative. So family time is important. I love music. I'm a collector of music. Uh, so I enjoy that. So I'm always listening to trying to find the next new thing, right? That no one else has found yet. So and, uh, I love cars. I love cars. All right. Yeah. And I'm a farm kid too. So I, anytime I can get out in nature, get on the farm, that's, I, I really enjoy that. Awesome. Any must-read books from your library? I'm a picture guy, not much of a reader. Uh, okay. But I have books galore. The, the new book by Bono, Surrender, I just read that. That's a powerful book. And again, it ties my back to my interest in music. And yeah. The first bands I saw as a freshman at Iowa State, they uh, came to Ames, Iowa. Uh, that's just something. That, that's, the, that's the latest book I read. But, uh, All right. Yeah. Any favorite quotes? Oh, I always tease my guys. I, I'll draw something. And, and then they'll take it and they'll come back and say, I'm having trouble with this. And I said, why? It worked when I, when I drew it. It worked when I... <laughs> the other one that I always tease people, I don't care how you do it, just do it my way. But anyway, that's... <laughs> I think those are all things that, uh, again, I, I, I say that in, 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 in jest. I always, always urge people to, uh, back to your earlier statement, dream big and... Uh, that's uh, just telling my kids right now as they start their careers, pursue your dreams, dream big and pursue your dreams. Yeah. Last question is if dead or alive, if you could have three people around a dinner table, who would they be? Well, I was just, I was just looking at a book that I read right before Surrender was um, about Abraham Lincoln. I think that would be a, a wonderful person. Man, that's a tough question. You know, I, I always uh, just the things that has uh, influenced my life, it would be me to have uh, Frank Lloyd Wright at a table. Uh, yeah. It'd be interesting to have an, an artist. I don't know. Uh, Michelangelo. Man. Just, well, that'd be cool. Uh, to, you know, get Bono. And I, I'd probably need to get a, a female in there, too. My daughter loves Taylor Swift. So let's throw Taylor Swift in there, too. There you go. So that'd be quite a dinner table, wouldn't it? That, that would be. And and speaking of stadiums, she's selling out everywhere. Ticketmaster, I think, is under fire for, for the secondary market of uh, of Taylor Swift tickets, if we could all be that lucky. Yeah. David, the audience that listens to us is, is a diverse group of public stakeholders, uh, transitioning veterans coming into the engineering, construction, architectural industry. Uh, what would you say to somebody that's that's exploring our industry, wants to get involved in in the sexy side of stadium? Any warnings or any encouragement to coming into the sports and entertainment side of the construction, engineering, and architecture industry? So the one thing that I see with young architects today, there is a social aspect to the profession now, and uh, I think you know these are projects. I, I call them urban infrastructure. They have a huge impact on the built environment. They have a huge impact on the people that use them, but yet they, they house billion dollar entertainment industries too. So, you know, it's one of those things where uh, I see a lot of uh, kids come out of college now where they want to work on uh, housing, they want to work on schools, they want to work on things that they perceive as having a, a, a true, uh, more of a social impact. A hundred years from now, a thousand years from now, when you look back on these facilities and our culture, these buildings that that we specialize in will always be remembered and has a, a huge impact, a continued impact. And uh, that's, I think for me, 
they're big, they're hard to get their arms around, whereas a house is easier for an architect to get their arms around. Uh, and I just enjoy that complexity. I enjoy that all the people these facilities touch. And that's um, the, the cultural impact is different, but it's something that I, uh, I always encourage people to get in. And they are big projects. They are sexy projects. But at the same time, they're, it's very fulfilling to work on and, uh, to see them every Sunday. You know. That is. Well, since you're in Kansas City, I wish you luck this weekend. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Hope, hopefully my birds come out, but you know, may the best team win and let's have a, let's have a great game. And, uh, you guys haven't faced uh, a Pat Mahomes yet, the quarterbacks that you face. Uh, so, and then if all of our receivers are healthy and a couple of the defensive line, D line plays well, uh, it's going to be a, it'll be a good game. The, I wish the Eagles the best of luck too. Yeah. yeah. Same to you guys. Well, David, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, I know our audience is going to appreciate this, bringing your perspective and your experience and your career. Uh, to our audience is, is something special. So thank you so much for your time. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you for the opportunity and good luck to you. Thank you. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this show, do us a favor and subscribe to Inspiring People and Places on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast hosting platform. We'd also greatly appreciate if you left us a review and shared this with other entrepreneurial public servants and all your friends and family in the AEC space. Be sure to visit our website, www.mcfaglobal.com. Sign up for our newsletter to stay in touch with us and learn about all of the projects and clients we're helping. Last but not least, we are hiring. We are always hiring. Do us a favor. Take a look at what jobs we have open. Contact us through our website or connect with me on LinkedIn. Until next time, have a great rest of your week and a great weekend.